Hi everyone, welcome back to A4Li's Scientific Spotlight. I'm your host, Brenda Eep. Today we have Alex Trapp from Retro Biosciences. He's a computational biologist who's passionate about bridging his work with experimental biologists to find ways to tackle the hallmarks of aging through rejuvenation. Continue listening to learn how it all began. Thank you, Alex, for joining us today. Uh, thank you. It's great to be here. So how I like to start these conversations is by asking you where you're originally from and what initially sparked your interest in science. Ooh, a uh, bit of a long journey for me. So I, I was born in the south of France, Toulouse, although my family's from the northeast of France. Spent some time in Germany when I was younger as well. Lived in Paris for a bit. And then when I was nine, we moved to the U.S. We moved to Dallas, Texas. And that was a big culture shock moving from Europe to the U.S. I learned English along the way. We also lived in the Buffalo, New York region as well. And then I ended up going to school, the college at University of Rochester in Western New York, which was really dope. And I would say that's really where I was interested in science beforehand as well. Instead, I was really interested in biology in high school, but I think it's really when you're exposed to higher education in college that you can really get interested in it. And for me, that was through research. So it's really cool to read a textbook and to learn about what other people have discovered. And it, it, of course, builds your foundations for being a scientist. But to be able to make those discoveries yourself, I think it's just like infinitely more powerful. So I would say that. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I was recently told about the, I guess, there's a geroscience effort too in Toulouse, right? And there's a meeting that happens too. And it's a great, I think it's a great conference too. I think the previous one was on clinical trials. And I just heard that it was a very collaborative um, environment from everyone around the world um, interested and engaged in the field. So it's really good to see. Wow, you've been everywhere. Definitely a culture shock, especially in Texas. (laughs) Yeah, Paris and Texas is a fun one. (laughs) Yeah. That's really interesting. So do you have any family members in STEM or was it just the college exposure and biology um, that interested you? No one in my extended family is into biological research, but I have a couple of family members who are like healthcare professionals. So my grandparents were both psychiatric nurses in France. Mm-hmm. And my uncle is a psychiatrist or was a psychiatrist until he retired. And I have two cousins one is training to be a psychiatrist and one uh, for ophthalmology. But yeah, no one, my parents are more in the, my my mother and and father studied economics and finance at university. So definitely more oriented towards there. So (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Aging and economics, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, a lot of white white papers on how it affects our economy and stuff like that. So definitely super interesting and in your uh, family too like uh, your cousin I think your cousin ophthalmologist I think there's a lot of eye research going on too so super interesting yeah like biosciences David Sinclair's company um yeah yeah, excited to see what they put out yeah it's a collaborative effort in the end indeed you did your I think bachelor's at Rochester right with Vera Right. Yeah, Vera Gorbinova and Andrei Silvanov and David Goldfarb, who was my first kind of mentor in biology. He was more in like the nuclear transport space, but he was getting really into aging towards the end of his career. Mm-hmm. Um, I was emeritus, but he was really into yeast aging. And I thought that was like, he was like modulating it like incredibly. And I was like, wow, I didn't know you could do that for lifespan. And so mm-hmm. yeah, then he, he put me in touch with Vera and, and Stefan in, in her lab. 
and started studying naked more apps. And I was there for two and a half years, started on the experimental side and then slowly transitioned over to the computational side. I spent a couple months in London studying abroad at UCL and took my first computational biology class there. And that was an eye-opener. I just thought I could contribute like a lot more to that space than, than the experimental stuff. But I, I really value kind of the hybrid yeah. um, environment that I trained yeah. in. I saw the recent news, the Matrix Biosciences, right? The Pfizer yeah. company. Did you have anything involved with the hydrolonic acid finding and the naked mole rats in Barrow's lab? Or Yeah, not myself. It was a little bit earlier. In 2013, there was a Nature paper. First author was Zhao Tian, who's just starting his lab in San Diego now. He spent time with David Sinclair after Vera's lab. Um, But that that was really cool work. I did work with Nick and Morad stem cells. They don't produce much hyaluronic acid, at least the the fibroblasts mostly do. And that's what was studied in this 2013 Nature paper. But yeah, in my case, I worked with the hematopoietic stem cells and trying to characterize the immune system, along with the postdoc that I was working with. And then also the mesenchymal stem cells, so the niche around the hematopoietic stem cells and how it all comes together to make this animal kind of remarkably long-lived and resistant to, to many diseases. Yeah, it's interesting. I know a lot of people or a lot of companies went towards the naked mole rat um, avenue, right? Because mice, they're, they live long because they get the cush life in a cage, right? And the good hygiene and everything. So um, how did you but, find yourself at Dr. Gladish's lab doing computation bio? Yes, I, I graduated uh, college in 2020, uh, right as the pandemic hit. Uh, I was originally more interested in, in pursuing, at the time, a double degree, uh, an MD-PhD. Oh. Um, I thought I could yeah, contribute a lot to humanity that way. Um, and then I realized that just medicine was not for me. <laughs> so I was more... <laughs> headed more into the research track. But before starting a PhD, I just wanted to get more research experience. And especially because I had made this shift from experimental to computational biology. I had done a little bit in undergrad and taking a couple of courses, but I think you really learn when you're just like fully ingrained in the computational team and just like grinding on a problem. Yeah. Learning by yourself. So yeah, I emailed Vadim, I remember a couple of months before graduating and I was like, hey man, it'd be awesome <laughs> if I could pull through and, and, and do some cool work with you. And it happened that that was the case. I started working experimentally with a post postdoc there at the time, now a professor in Barcelona. His name is Marco. Vadim was originally interested in Suino proteins. So he transitioned over to aging in the second part of his career. But in, in the first part of his career, he became the guy to study Suino proteins. So there's only a, a, a few in the human proteome, but they're very important for a variety of redox reactions. And if you don't have these Suino proteins, you, you die. Yeah. And the way that they're made is that there's a 21st amino acid, selenocysteine, which is not normally encoded by, by codons, so sets of three nucleotides, but it's instead um, encoded by stop codon, which normally signifies termination of the amino acid sequence. And it's dependent on a three prime element called the secus element. So it's just like 3D organization that like, if you have this particular element after this stop codon, you will read through the stop codon and instead insert selenocysteine as opposed to the stop. So we were interested in, in working on this and maybe do some gene therapies or something like that. Very proof of concept. But yeah, eventually I switched over to a more computational project because Vadim was really interested in this single cell epigenetic clock landscape, which I guess is where I blossomed <laughs> as a scientist yeah. in some ways. It was a really hard problem. People had been I'm sure people that are viewing this are semi-familiar with epigenetic clocks and the concept of tracking biological age, but all this had been done in the bulk setting beforehand, which means that you're getting it from 
like millions of blood cells at a time or maybe uh, a sample of liver from a mouse right and you're just looking at like the whole the average and that's interesting right you can tell maybe the average of this after a treatment maybe the average goes down which is still useful but you're really not getting that sub on the cellular resolution that you would need to see because maybe some cells are getting younger and some cells are not some cells are getting older for example and so being able to measure aging at the level of single cells, especially in interventions that are highly heterogeneous, I think is, is really important. And so worked on that for a while. Yeah. And your I liked your 2021 paper too. I think that kind of made it for you, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a good paper. We were fortunate enough to get the cover of Nature Aging mm-hmm. in the first 12th issue of the first volume. So that, because it started the same year. So it yeah. happened in December. Um, yeah, that was really cool. I, there's, yeah, Vadim is a, is a fantastic mentor and he just uh, thinks about aging in a really good way and trying to get at these very fundamental questions of when does it begin? Why does it happen? Are the changes that we observe damaging or protective? All these things I think are, are super interesting. So yeah, I, I also think I'll just mention two other things from that time, maybe three, but one really interesting finding that we had, and this was a finding of my colleague Chaba, who's uh, now a professor in Hungary, is that there's this rejuvenation event during embryogenesis, which I think is like really critical because so many companies now are pursuing reprogramming or rejuvenation therapies using fairly artificial means that people discovered in the 2000s and later won Nobel Prize for. But the fact that our body does it every generation, right? Because the the, the sex cells, the sperm and the oocyte, they age with you during your life, but somehow they, they need to give rise to an embryo that is always age zero. Or every year, or every time you have you have a child, and otherwise every generation people would just get increasingly older. Mm-hmm. Uh, so applying epigenetic clocks to this like very early part of embryonic development and really uncovering this like decrease in epigenetic age during gastrulation when you have a lot of cell division, mm-hmm. and then just a monotonic increase in finding what seems to be the start of the aging process, which really seems to happen in development. Yeah, uh, my colleague Carlos, right? He's he extended that idea at the um I, hypothesis um prize at Foresight too. And right, yeah, I saw that. I was there when that happened. Yeah, yeah, it was really nice. It's yeah. I think it's, it's a really promising area of research, but a lot of work just needs to be done because we really have no idea what happens. There's a lot of papers that describe embryonic development, but <laughs> it's such a complex process and really harnessing the parts that matter for us while not resetting. The entire epigenome to where the cell becomes pluripotent. Yeah, yeah, I heard African, not the African killifish, just I think zebrafish are really good organisms to study embryogenesis, but I'm sure there are other organisms that are best suited for that study too. Okay, yeah. so let's see. So you did some research, right, in Dr. Glavish's lab, right? And then were you one of the first hires at Retro? Indeed. Yeah. Ah, uh, cool. Yeah. The company started, I think almost like officially almost three years ago, but we really like, like acquired lab space and, and got things going in the fall of 2020 or yeah, like the winter of 2021, basically when my paper around the time that my paper came out. Yeah. I actually, I met Joe who's the CEO, remarkable individual at a foresight vision weekend uh, in 2021. Yeah. yeah introduced to him by a couple of people and and, um, I was really on the track of the very like what is expected of you when you go into science are you going to do a a PhD you're going to do a postdoc you're going to become faculty and and that was an appealing path but at the same time it just takes so long I just wanted to like really get into the action 
and really contribute to making medicines. Like I really enjoyed like publishing papers and it's great to talk about them and to make the occasional tweets or give a conference talk, but to like actually translate the finding of a paper, whether it's methodological or like therapeutic to, to the clinic, right? And to like actually like human beings, you receive a treatment that you helped to create and it somehow helps them, right? Whether it's extending their life or even just curing some kind of disease. I think it's like perhaps the most powerful thing that I can be doing. And so that's why I switched over to, to industry and been at Retro now for now almost two years, I guess. And it's been a, it's been a great honor. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually pretty, pretty excited when Joe mentioned that Retro was pr- starting a graduate research fellowship, right? So like that kind of exposure that you got in a lab, but you can do that at Retro, which is amazing and figure it out on your own there to right? Become an independent scientist there without any obligations, like ties to a specific program, whether it's a master's or a PhD. It's super yeah. awesome. It's still early days for that program. We only have a couple of people in it at the moment. But yeah, I think it's a great alternative to to be able to provide the experiences that I was able to get, like you mentioned, in academia, but all enclosed for people who are just like really talented, but perhaps only graduating college and they don't have the classic like PhD and postdoc experience that most biotechs. um, Yeah, exactly. So what are you building that retro? (laughs) Yeah, we're building a bunch of things, um, five programs at the moment. Uh, one program is interested in plasma protein modulation. So there's evidence from a variety of papers and also some of the parabiosis literature, which I was also involved in when I was in Vadim's lab. We published a nice paper this year that shows that uh, parabiosis effects are quite durable um, and that you do rejuvenate the old parabiosis partner. This is when you connect the young and an old mouse together. And so it's inspired by by the findings from this, and it's trying to see if we can make any kind of translational intervention that somehow modulates the blood profile to where perhaps you remove some of the bad factors that are accumulating in older people, or maybe you would add some youthful factors that young people have more of. And then we have an autophagy program, which is mostly just a small molecule that we're pushing through the clinical trials. I don't interface with that program too much. Mm-hmm. They don't generate a, a huge amount of sequencing data. I'm a computational biologist, so I'm really into sequencing data. But I think what I'm most bullish about and most passionate for long-term effect sizes is really, and it's just really, yeah, large effect sizes as well is reprogramming. Right now we have three subsets of this broader reprogramming division. We're interested in T-cell reprogramming. I think this makes the most sense in the context of immunotherapy to begin with. So T cells naturally, when they uh, fight cancer and, and when they get older and older people, they just have decreased efficacy at fighting the cancer. Yeah. And if you are able to, for example, harness the T cells that are infiltrating into a tumor, but are perhaps exhausted because the tumor microenvironment is making them so, so they have no effect on the tumor, but they do have antigen specificity for it. So they are there and they are seeing it. If you were to extract those T cells and then perhaps reprogram them to a more naive state that would permit them to attack the tumor as opposed to the, the when they were in the exhausted state and, and then expand them and put them back into the patient, you could perhaps cure some cell tumors. And so we're really interested in that paradigm, cell tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, uh, but also exploring other avenues within the T cell space. It's just really tractable because you can just get them Ideally, you get your T cells from the like a blood transfusion uh, that you would just get. A lot of the in vivo stuff is much harder, right? Like you, you mentioned the eye earlier in our conversation, that you have to deliver something into a human or to or to an animal. Yeah. It's like 
complex. But we are also interested in that. So we have a program in liver reprogramming. So trying to piece yeah, piece apart what happens during in vivo reprogramming and the right delivery methods and what the right dosages are and maybe if you need cycling or not, just exploring that generally. And then our last program, which I'm also really interested in, is our HSE reprogramming program, so hematopoietic stem cells. So that's neat because I worked on these cells in Nakamura's at the beginning of my scientific career, and so I'm working on them again now. And the idea there is that there's been a couple of papers that show that transplantation of young hematopoietic stem cells into old seems to have beneficial effects. Uh, and so we're just really interested in, in moving that forward. And instead of having to have a source of young HSEs that you just mine from for other people, you could do this in an autologous fashion, right? So where you take an older person's hematopoietic stem cells and then you rejuvenate them um, and then put them back into the body. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. I think the first time I learned about iPSCs too, I was like, oh, wow, you can take these from patients and correct them and then give them back. So there's less chance of an invasion, like a threat to the immune system because it's a it's from a familiar it's from their fluid their body so it, it's more recognize, recognizable yeah, um, autologous yeah. is nice in that regard although it's also much more logistically complex because you yeah, need to exactly. get the cells in the first place bring them over at some point maybe we'll have a manufacturing cell therapy manufacturing mm -hmm. facilities and you get them over to this facility do all your things and then put them back into the patient and especially in the case of hematopoietic stem cells, uh, we're developing methods to condition the bone marrow. So normally when you do these hematopoietic or bone marrow transplantations, you need to get rid of the old bone marrow because mm -hmm. if it's competition between both, uh, it's not good. And getting rid of this old bone marrow is usually very toxic. People use chemotherapy, radiation uh, in most cases, and we're developing methods to do it in a non-toxic way so that it could be amenable for just like broader applications but again still very early in the research phase but really cool data coming from that yeah i, I guess i can, I, I can yeah. introduce you as well so i lead the computational team there yeah uh, people I mean, it's mm -hmm. really cool yeah we just work with so many different modalities of data from imaging to uh, single cell rna seq recent forays into flow cytometry which gives you much quicker readouts as opposed to single cell where you to make libraries and sequence them yeah yeah just multimodal trying to understand aging the highest resolution that we can and as mm -hmm. as many different kind of perspectives as we can uh, and hopefully that gives us some hints as to how to rejuvenate organisms yeah so i like to ask people who are scientists how do they describe their work to their friends or family who don't have a science background how, like how do you start that off <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a it's an interesting question i guess that's the case for me because most of my family doesn't have a science background i guess a lot of friends in, in college as well didn't yeah, for me, it's a lot of, ever since I transitioned more into computational biology, it's obviously a lot of coding. Yeah. Creating <laughs> algorithms using existing algorithms of some kind to analyze your data sets, thinking about effective visualizations and how you want to communicate the results to wet lab scientists. There's often, there can be a disconnect, right? That happens between what happens in the computational space and an experimental space. It's like very tangible experimentally. But then the uh, experimentalist might look at some plots and really have no idea how they were generated, right? So making sure that the communication is really effective. Um, and yeah, just generally also keeping up with literature is crucial. So reading a lot of papers, especially since we have multiple programs and yeah. our supportive program, computational biology interfaces with all of them. So you need to be at the state of the art of all these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess a, a lot of that. Yeah. I mean, how do you, how do you keep up with just 
the latest advancements? Do you, do you guys do journal clubs or talk about it in the cafeteria or the office or something like that? Yeah, we definitely discuss papers quite often, uh, especially when new ones come out. There's this preprint server by archive where you can get notifications from, so you know when, when the freshest features has dropped. Um, yeah. You can also just a look on, on journal websites. But honestly, uh, to answer your question, like, Twitter is like the key place <laughs> to be for, I guess it's us now, but used to be yeah. Twitter, um, the key place for science. Like all the important papers that dropped or all the new computational methods, they're all like dropped with a thread and some links on Twitter and then people comment and there's discussions. And I think that's like the greatest way to find to find literature at the moment. Yeah, it's definitely like at the palm of your hands too, right? When you're on your phone, it's so great. Honest question, do you think there are too many epigenetic clocks out there? Uh, <laughs> and that feedback. Yeah, there's so we actually try to get around this problem or not necessarily get around the problem, but make it easier for people to use these clocks. Uh, my colleague in Vadim's lab, Albert, put out this preprint called Clockbase and it's associated with a website and you can just go on it and you, you can browse any data that's been uploaded to Geo and the, the computations have already been performed for the epigenetic age clocks. Or you can add your, your own data and just get a nice data frame of your predictions. So hopefully it's easier for people to use it um, there at the inception. But yeah, they all look at different things, right? Um, like the Horvath clock was a multi-tissue clock. That the newest Horvath, like million clock, tracks changes that are common between mammals. So perhaps they're a little bit different than just those in humans. You can have tissue-specific clocks, which are also useful, right? So you don't want to apply a clock train on blood to just the liver and vice versa. So yes and no, I think it's a very promising area of research, clocks in general, including like transcriptomic and, and more and more of these single cell clocks, I'm hoping. At the same time, I think there's a fundamental truth about clocks and that and there was one from True Diagnostic too that just came out last week as well, Omic MH. Yeah. like the most accurate and they use like electronic health records and mm -hmm. just biobank to date as well. So yeah, they're great over there. But it's still unclear kind of how these things translate over to function. Same with doing any kind of cell work that we do here. Okay, like maybe your therapeutic reduces the biological age of a cell or a sample by two years, three years. But does it actually make the, the cells do anything better? Okay, And measuring that, I think, is crucial. So a lot of value to computational approaches. Ultimately, you need to validate with function. And it's harder in, in some ways and in some cases than others. So for T-cells, for example, it's... Uh, and much more established kind of the, the main assays that you would do to evaluate function. You co-culture them with tumors and you have they kill tumors, right? That's like the major one. But there are some other cells where it's a bit more unclear how to properly measure their function and whether or not your rejuvenation therapeutic beyond just shifting a number down in a graph actually makes a meaningful difference um, in the body. So do you think, so like cells, single cells is one thing, but then I guess compartments, right? Cellular organs, organelles, like mm. that a lot of people are very specific on how to tackle the mitochondria issue or the lysosomes now too and the er basically but yeah, yeah. it's getting more and more interesting because you're getting more methods to profile things at a yeah. crazier resolution than ever before so yeah. there's no methods to do like subcellular profiling and it's going to grow at, at scale i imagine as well so as you're saying i think yeah people right now are just looking at I don't know. Some people are like very specific and just look at like mitochondrial aging, right? Or like ribosome aging or things like that. And then there's other kind of approaches that are very broad, but then that miss the little things that are happening. And 
And I think integrating both is crucial. So like the systems level understanding of biology to where you make these like key discoveries about what's happening at the very localized level, like what changes occur with aging, but also um, kind of learning how to model them as, as part of a whole. Because eventually one would want a model of a cell or a model of an organism to model exactly what's happening with aging, right? Maybe it's just stochastic noise. There have been some preprints recently that are arguing that. Maybe there's some developmental aspects of it. It's just continued. It's still very unclear, right? And so being able to measure things and then somehow model them is... Yeah. Just... That's why I, I really appreciate longitudinal data, right? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of studies are just looking at one time point, but if you can track it, right? Because I think with cancer and Alzheimer's too, someone like one person is the risk factor of developing that it peaks at 60 at age 60 or something and then comes back down and it's really interesting to see how the aging landscape plays a role in that and what drives this increased susceptibility at that age so yeah, yeah. i'm all about longitudinal studies as well i think they probably have some in this newest clock i suspect but yeah, whenever you can do a longitudinal experiment, it's the most interesting. If you have your starting population and you can measure it and then you see how it changes over time, even when you're reprogramming, right? You take yeah. samples every day or every two days, or maybe with an automated system, you take samples every three hours and you have a beautiful high resolution time course of how things are going. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I can spend all day picking your brain about this, but just last one last question. What do you like to do outside of science? Do you have any hobbies? Oh, indeed. That's good to hear. <laughs> Yeah, I, I play the piano. Oh, so okay. To my piano right now. It's right here. So, nice. Look like yeah. you have a lot of music notes or sheets. <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of sheet music, a lot of records as well, and collecting around music. Oh, but, okay. yeah, over the last couple of years, definitely like really into music. Uh, ever since I started college, really, I had a couple of friends, including one, my friend Evan, who's a producer, and so he introduced me to like yeah. really appreciating music and just like the layers that go into it and how you put it together. So I've been listening to a lot of music the last seven years. Yeah, I love to hike as well. I live in the hills now, so there's a bunch of beautiful places to hike. There's a park nearby where there's just horses, so you can just go and walk with the horses. Yeah, things like that. And then just like yeah, chilling with people, reading. Yeah. Do you miss the beaches in France? <laughs> Yeah, so I have very faint memories of the beaches oh. in France because I was really young when we lived in the South, although my parents recently moved back to the South, so maybe I'll be able to go back to a beach, but not really, I would say. Like, I think California is a pretty optimal place to live. Yeah. Um, yeah. The mountains, the beaches, like the, the ocean. Like yeah, the, red, the redwoods. Yeah, exactly, the trees. Yeah. yeah beautiful cool. place. Okay, I think that's all we have time for. This was really nice and engaging. I appreciate you coming on to yeah, the Scientific Spotlight. And I guess if anyone had any questions, are you active on LinkedIn or Twitter or X? How would one reach out to you? Yeah, I think um, X is a great one. Or okay. <laughs> I'm going to have a hard time calling it X. Yeah. Twitter for me for a while, but... Yeah, that works. I also have LinkedIn. Um, yeah, wherever people can reach me. Um, okay. Yeah. It seems if like X, people, yeah. If people are interested in, in positions at Retro, we're always hiring for diverse positions. So you can check out our website as well. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for joining us today and to everyone else. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. And to everyone else, thank you for watching and stay tuned for more Scientific Spotlights. Bye.